This is the podcast, and then she said, I'm your host, Ellie Blakesley. Welcome to this episode of our series, Shakespeare. For anyone who doesn't already know, I am a huge Shakespeare nerd. We come back to Shakespeare more than any other playwright or author, both in theater and in literature, and we use his plays to explore new ideas in theater, like representation and blind or inclusive casting. In this series, we'll explore productions of Shakespeare's plays that do something new or significant with representation or casting. Productions that use Shakespeare's familiar texts to tell the stories of people who haven't been adequately represented on stage. So, Gil is back on the podcast. This episode, we're talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream that was performed at the Bridge Theatre in London in the summer of 2019. A production that I loved so much. I saw it five times. <laughs> Two of them, admittedly, were on the, uh, the NT Live live stream the week that it was on YouTube. But I loved it. I think it is the best production of a Shakespeare play I've ever seen. And you loved it as well, didn't you? Yeah, I saw it once with you in the pit and also once when it was on YouTube. And it was life-changing. It's so good. Mildly. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I saw it in June of 2019 and left the theater and called my mom who was coming to visit in August. It was like, mom, we're buying tickets for this right now. And then when you guys, you and Curtis were coming, I was like, okay, we're going again. I'll just go twice in a week. That's fine. It was so good. And like a lot of it, I can't even articulate what was so brilliant about it. It was just, everything was great. Okay, wait, before I get ahead of myself, a summary. For anyone who doesn't know the plot of A Midsummer Night's Dream, there are three groups of characters. There are the lovers, there are the fairies, and there are the mechanicals. At the beginning of the play, we meet the lovers, Hermia and Lysander and Helena and Demetrius. Um, Hermia's father has brought her in front of Duke Theseus and his betrothed Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons, queen of my heart, played by Gwendolyn Christie. <laughs> Truly so, <laughs> so beautifully. So Hermia's father's brought her in front of the Duke because he wants her to marry Demetrius, but she wants to marry Lysander. And he's essentially like, hey, Duke Theseus, force my daughter to comply with my choices. Uh, and Duke Theseus says, yeah, either you, you marry Demetrius as your father wants, or you can be a nun. Cool, everybody, great, awesome. And uh, then Theseus and Hippolyta leave. Hippolyta is not pleased. We learn in this scene that uh, Demetrius has, quote unquote, made love to Helena, who's Hermia's best friend. Essentially, like, they were involved, and then he tossed her aside as soon as Hermia came in the picture. So everybody leaves, and Hermia and Lysander decide they're going to run away so that they can be together. And then Helena comes in. She's all upset because Demetrius doesn't love her. He loves Hermia instead. And Hermia tells Helena that they're going to run away. And then they leave, and Helena goes, well, I'll tell Demetrius that they're going to run away, and then he'll be grateful to me. And maybe he'll love me. 
cool. That's the lovers for, for now. We then come to the fairies. The king of the fairies is Oberon. The queen of the fairies is Titania. Now, in the text, Titania has a little changeling boy who's the son of one of her, one of the people who waits on her, who then died. And Oberon wants this boy to be his servant. And Titania refuses. So they are in a huge fight. All the seasons are out of whack because they're not getting along. Every time they meet, they fight and there are storms and the whole fairy world is a mess. That's in the like text. any married couple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, like, what an interesting reference to climate change from 400 years ago. <laughs> anyway, um, that's in the text. In the bridge production, they swap Titania and Oberon's storylines. So that's going to be fun for all of you who don't know the, don't know the, um, the storyline while we're going through it right now. I'll try and remember to be as clear as possible. In the bridge production, it's Titania who wants the boy and Oberon who is refusing to give her the child. Uh, they essentially fight for a bit. And Puck, who in the text is henchman to Oberon, but in this production is henchman to Titania, helps... Oh God, I just have to pick one because it's going to be really hard to swap back and forth every time I say a character. Um, Okay, we'll go with the text. We'll go with the text. Puck and Oberon, they're plotting. Oberon says, do you remember this flower that I saw Cupid's arrow land in? If you put the juice of this flower on somebody's eyelids when they're asleep, when they wake up, they fall in love with the first living creature they see go get that flower for me. And Puck is like, hell yeah, I will do that. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Possibly go wrong. Off he goes. Then Helena and Demetrius come by. Demetrius is trying to shake Helena off. Helena is very insistent that she follow him. Um, I think the, the line is, forgive me if I paraphrase, I am your spaniel, and Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Yikes. Anyway, um, Oberon witnesses this and is like, yikes. And when Puck returns to the flower, he says, find this, this Athenian couple. When you find that, that boy, anoint the, his eyes with the love juice so when he wakes, he'll see this girl and prove more fond on her than she on him. Just to mess with people. And Puck goes off to do that. Those are the lovers and the fairies for the moment. (laughs) Then we meet the Mechanicals. They're a group of working class people who are getting together to rehearse a play that they're going to try and get performed at Theseus's wedding at the end of the week. There are six of them. The most notable is Bottom. He is very full of himself. He wants to do everything all the time. Sometimes he it's in a like really funny, really endearing way. Sometimes he's played very obnoxious. He's all about, he gets cast as like the leading lover, but every time somebody gets cast, he's like, I could play that role. Let me do it. I'll do it the best. So they have a bit of a rehearsal and uh, now we just flip back and forth. So, you know, we see Hermia and Lysander in the woods. Lysander's lost their way, so they lay down to sleep. Puck comes across them and mistakes them for the Athenian he's supposed to find, which is Demetrius, 
and he puts the love juice on Lysander's eyes. They're sleeping apart because Hermia was like, uh, we are not married yet. You are not touching me. Goodbye. And uh, so he puts the love juice on Lysander's eyes. And then Helena and Demetrius happen to run by. Demetrius finally loses Helena. And she turns and sees Lysander on the, on the ground and is like, is he dead? And wakes him up. And Lysander falls in love with Helena because of this love spell. And she thinks he is taking the piss out of her and is very upset and runs away. And he follows her. And then Hermia wakes up alone and goes off into the woods to find Lysander. We return to the mechanicals. They're rehearsing. There's one bit of a scene where Bottom goes off a little bit into the woods to be off stage. Puck has come across their rehearsal and uh, decides he's gonna mess with them. And while Bottom is off stage, he puts a donkey's head on Bottom. Sometimes it's like truly a full donkey's head. Sometimes it's just ears and some mannerisms. It varies. Anyway, Bottom comes back in and the mechanicals freak out and run away. Oh God, I forgot about, at some point the fairies have come in and um, Titania is asleep in her bower above where they're rehearsing. So when uh, all the mechanicals run away, Bottom says, well, I'll sing, they're making fun of me. I'll sing to show them I'm not afraid. And his singing wakes up Titania, who of course has the love juice on her eyes because Oberon has come in and put the love juice on her eyes. We missed that and that bit that I forgot to tell you about too. And so falls in love with Bottom. And uh, there's then a very, very emphatic and effusive verbal love scene between them. And she takes him off to her bower with her fairies. And uh, it seems like Oberon's plan has gone really well. It's going really well. Huck comes in to tell Oberon how well it's going. And while he's giving this report, Demetrius and Hermia come by because they've run into each other in the woods. And Hermia thinks Demetrius has killed Lysander And Demetrius is like, I I didn't, but if we think he's dead, will you come back and marry me? Because he's a piece of shit. And Oberon's like, Puck, you anointed the wrong person's eyes with this love juice. You idiot! Go out and you have to find Helena of Athens and I will anoint his eyes right now, okay? Go bring her here. So Oberon puts love juice on Demetrius's eyes. Hermia has gone. They bring Helena back. God, this play is complicated. (laughs) They bring Helena back. (laughs) That doesn't help. (laughs) They bring Helena back and Demetrius wakes up and also falls in love with Helena. And she's like, now everyone's definitely taking the piss. And then all four of the lovers are in the same place. And Helena thinks Hermia's in on the joke and is understandably mad. And Hermia's like, why the fuck is my boyfriend pursuing you? And so everyone is, I mean, tensions are high. Tensions are high, but in a funny way. And they essentially just get into a big, a big old fight in the woods. Oberon and Puck are watching and occasionally like they involve themselves in some productions, not in the text, but they usually do. And then off they go running in the forest. Puck goes to like mess with Lysander and Demetrius trying to have a duel. And he just goes and gets in the way so they can't actually hurt each other. And then eventually puts everybody to sleep. 
They all are going to sleep in the same place and they take the love juice off of Lysander's eyes, but leave it on Demetrius's. So everything should be okay. Everybody should be happy. Except Demetrius, who's under a love spell for the rest of his life, but it's never addressed, so it's fine. Uh, meanwhile, Titania and Bottom have been having a good time. The fairies are like now pretty annoyed by Bottom because he's obnoxious. He's an obnoxious person to serve. And they go to sleep after some chatter, and Oberon comes in and is like, wow, this is pretty awful. Takes the love juice off of Titania's eyes. And she wakes up and is like, wow, I had a really weird dream. I dreamed I was in love with a donkey. And uh, Oberon's like, yeah, there he is. (laughs) (laughs) And it's honestly, like most productions I've seen, that bit is so tense. Mm, It's so uncomfortable. In this production, I loved. uh, Okay, so in this production, obviously it's Switch. It's Oberon waking up, Titania taking off the spell. And they have a moment where Oberon is just like crushed that this has happened. And then he just bursts out laughing and they just laugh together. And it was so good. (laughs) Like, he's just like, this is a really good joke. I really love it. Thank you. And then they're reconciled and everything's fine. By the way, um, Oberon's gotten the changeling child while Titani has been distracted by this love spell. So that happened as well. And then they, Puck takes the donkey's head off of bottom and they bottom wakes up when the fairies are gone and he's like i had a really weird dream i better go find my friends <laughs> and off he goes now duke theseus and hippolyta and hermia's father aegeus and co are out hunting and they stumble upon the lovers sleeping mostly naked in the woods and they're like this is weird <laughs> what's going on here and they wake them up and the lovers come out with their story Lysander says, Hermia and I were going to run away. Uh, And Aegeus is like, you hear? They were going to deprive me of my rights. What a fuckhead. (laughs) I know, right? Goodbye, Aegeus. Um, And and then Demetrius says, like, but I'm not in love with Hermia anymore. Now I'm in love with Helena. And Theseus is swayed by Hippolyta to let them be happy in the couples that they're in, uh, and says, you guys will get married with me and Hippolyta when we get married tomorrow. Chill. So it looks like everything's happy. By the way, in most productions, Theseus and Oberon and Titania and Hippolyta are played by the same actor. They double and then there's some cool overlap. And um, also the fairies mention that Oberon is sleeping with Hippolyta and Theseus is sleeping with Titania. And everybody kind of knows about it, but like not in a not in an official way. Anyway, that's a little text a text tidbit. So then we return to the mechanicals, who without bottom are sure that they can't do their play. They were going to be you know be paid well if they if they got um, to perform and gotten recognition. And without bottom, can't go ahead. And then Bottom comes in and everything's fine. And they go uh, go to do their play. And they <laughs> then they, they go and their play is chosen by Theseus to be put on at the wedding. Uh, it's a ridiculous play. They are not good actors. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Again, in this production, like one of the highlights. 
I feel like I always forget about the play within a play at the end. It's just like a like a short thing you don't think of. It was like half an hour. In this yeah. It was so funny. We'll come back to that. Anyway, they have the they have the play within the play. Uh, there's lots of side comments from the lovers and Theseus and Hippolyta, and then they all go off to have their wedding nights, and um, the fairies return to bless the house. And Puck has a nice little goodbye to the audience. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest Puck, if we have unearned luck, now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. And that's, that's been Summer Night's Dream. So... Remember, for the rest of the context of this episode, that in this production, Titania and Oberon's storylines are switched. So it's Oberon who has the spell, and uh, Titania who does all of the manipulating. Tell me, Gil, <laughs> about how much you love this production. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing is that, okay, so Midsummer is like the show that when you're in school, they take you to see because they think the sex jokes are less obvious. And it's always, it's got fairies, and so the kids are entertained. Anyway, so I've seen it like eight times as part of a school trip, and it's always the same, because it's always, you've got like, you know, some fun costumes, but it's always pretty much the same. And the text switch and the amount of like, just everyone, they made it so much fun. Like, going to see a comedy like that is that it's just, it's supposed to be a good time. Yeah. And they just absolutely pulled out all the stops. And it was just so, so entertaining and so yeah. good. There's a, that's interesting, too. Like, Midsummer is considered the, the Shakespeare play that you take kids to, which, like, once you've studied the play, it does, does not make sense. Because it, there are sex jokes and sexual manipulation all over the place. It is a dark play. And Emma Smith's book, This is Shakespeare, she talks a lot about that. And... Um, also the Globe podcast, the dark, the episode Dark Side of the Dream. And you're right, like, every production of Midsummer is, like, essentially the same. I've been in it twice, and it, like, wasn't that different. The, like, the design was different, but the characters are, are often played pretty much the same. I think right. that's, that too, is, like, this cast made those characters their own. Absolutely. We also, like, we've never talked about the the, the different races of the actors, but there is... I wouldn't say it's race blind casting or color blind casting. Uh, I think it's very color conscious casting. I've been reading a bunch of articles talking about the idea of color blind casting erasing the the racial history of the actor of color, which isn't ideal. Obviously, like that's not that's not what you want. Because we as a society aren't free of the associations we make based on people's appearance, be that race or physical ability or perceived gender, we can't expect an audience today to look at an actor and let go of any associations they have with their appearance. I think ideally we cast consciously, 
find the best actor for the role, and then discuss how their race and gender, etc., affect how the character exists in the story. In this production, both Lysander and Demetrius were black, which like I've seen productions before where Lysander is black and Demetrius is white, and you get the implication that Aegeus likes Demetrius better for Hermia because he's racist. And I think those two actors were the right choices for the role. But there's also significance in that both of those actors are Black. So there's no racism being played into them, how they're pitted against each other. Both are good examples of consciousness in casting. This, is not, this isn't really related to race, but I thought it was interesting that um, the actor who played Hermia had more of a working class accent. Helena had more of an upper class accent. She's also kind of blonde and like... Not more conventionally pretty because they're both gorgeous, but but you know what I mean. And so I think it's just an interesting interplay to have the woman who reads as lower class playing the more desirable character and playing the one that is her father has all the power in society. Her father is the one who's playing politics to marry her off to the most, to the highest bidder. And I thought that was an interesting use of actors in a kind of subtle way. Yeah, because the actress is Scottish. Yeah, actually, there's some racist comments in the text about Hermia. They're often compared as a raven and a dove, or Hermia is dark where Helena is light. And a lot of productions read that as referring to hair color. You see brunette Hermias and blonde Helenas everywhere. But there's at least one instance in the text where I think it's Lysander, when he's under the spell of the love potion, makes a very racist comment toward Hermia about like why would anyone want to be with somebody so dark which is probably not referring to her hair color why do we all read it that way which I mean you know you could go into a whole a whole conversation about the the inherent racism and sexism and general discrimination that's in Shakespeare most written things that we have but that is something we'll come back to in a future episode let's talk about the queer moments in the production Obviously, there's Oberon and Bottom, and uh, who are, they're definitely fan favorites in this production. Let me tell you, every time they're on stage together, the audience went wild. Yeah. We never said, this is an immersive production. Yes, that is super important. Half the audience, maybe, maybe not half. A bunch of the audience is standing in the pit, and the stage is a, a series of platforms that raise and lower, and there are ushers moving the audience around. I think part of that is why this production is so good, is that you are yes. immersed in the action. <gasps> yes. So, over on the bottom, and then also in Act 3, Scene 2, when the lovers are all quarreling and under love spells, um, Puck used the love flower to make... Helena and Hermia kiss, and Lysander and Demetrius kiss. So do you feel like these moments are actually queer representation or like creating a kind of queer inclusive world? Or did they feel like they were played for laughs? I, I don't know. I think to an extent it was a little bit of shock value, um, like a laugh, a comedy point. But I also think that it's kind of a, an interesting way to show that the, the drama isn't between two pairs of couples, it's between four people yeah, who all have their own kind of agendas and they're all playing off each other in interesting ways, um, which is also something that I think I've missed in productions I've seen, you know, kind of more generic productions I've seen, which is just that you don't really get an individual sense of character from each, per- from each person. And for me, this played up a lot of the conflict within, you know, all four of them. So I, it, it is kind of, it was, you know, people were laughing but it's also, you know, 
that was just kind of the vibe of the show for me. You know, I'm more than willing to laugh at that because I thought it was funny. Yeah, and and it didn't feel like a malicious joke. Yeah, and it also didn't see like feel like oh we're you know here's all our queer representation. We had two boys and two girls on stage, so yeah, we did it. It was like you know it, we're in fairyland. We're in the middle of the night in the woods, yeah. and shit happens. That was the vibe <laughs> of the whole show. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and and what you're saying about them, the conflict being between four people. They also at at the wedding when they're all departing for their wedding nights. The girls kiss again, and the guys have kind of like a, a <laughs> I forgot about that. moment where they're like, are we going to kiss? Nah. And then they're like, yeah, later. All right. <laughs> I agree. It just kind of adds to the, the world that the show is in. And with Oberon and Bottom, I mean, Oliver Chris, who we have spoken about before on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. He is so funny without trying. Like, he's just... He's hilarious. And he, like as Theseus, he's so buttoned up and so proper. And then as Oberon, like he, the first scene you see him in, he is the fight. So he's very like stressed. Uh, and then seeing him go into this spelled state. Oh my God. He's so funny. He's just, he's so earnest and so silly. It was, it was wonderful. And he, he's funny doing that independently of being attracted to a male character. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's a good point. It, it wasn't funny because it was two men being interested in each other. Like both of those actors are hysterically funny. Yeah. Putting them on stage together and watching yeah. them interact with each other and like throw all this effusive earnest interest in each other was so good it was it was so well acted I, oh. I mean the whole fairyland setting is just bisexual chaos and so yeah. it didn't feel particularly jarring one way or the other it didn't feel performative it just it was like Titania's playing a funny prank yeah and now I mean I think that's something we should get into is how the the connotations of that changed so dramatically from the text Oh, yes. Yes. So I feel like the issue I have with a lot of productions of Midsummer is we're on like arranging for this sexual manipulation of his wife is like, that's deeply unsettling. It's unsettling in all contexts of how it's used in this show. But especially, especially with Gwendolyn Christie playing Titania. I remember before I saw it for the first time, I was really interested to see how she played the interaction with bottom because i didn't know about the switch yet and then and and because that effusive earnest love is not anything like her usual type of character like that's not brand of tarth uh and then go like when i realized they switched the storylines the first time i saw it i was so excited because i mean as soon as, as soon as you know it happens, you're like, oh, well, the casting makes perfect sense now because Oliver Chris is going to be brilliant at that. And Gwendolyn Christie is going to be so good at just yeah. like being powerful and in charge and loving this joke that she's playing. Oh, yes. Okay, tell me your thoughts. Well, I mean, there's the obvious difference of no matter how, you know, messed up it is as a concept, it is so much more disturbing when it's 
you know, a man playing this trick on his wife, just in terms of watching it. I mean, it's, it's like you can't get away from that association. Yeah, it feels rapey. Yeah. I don't know. I, I yeah. feel like I want to question why it doesn't feel rapey the other exactly. way. Exactly. And I think the answer is in this production because they have such a good-natured relationship. Yeah, because I think you're right. Reconcile at the end. Mm-hmm. You can see that they genuinely care about each other and that they both find it funny. Usually, mm-hmm. like Oberon found it funny, and then it's kind of serious, intense. But they both laugh about it. I mean, and Oberon laughs first in this production. Mm-hmm. And seeing them, that it's not, he's not scarred by it. It's not something yeah. like, I can't believe you did this to me. Uh, I think that that made the difference for me. And especially when you contrast that with like the double casting, which is most productions do, of Theseus and Hippolyta, which is obviously one-sided, very controlling. Yes. The power dynamic is out of whack. Yeah. Um, Theseus defeated Hippolyta right. in war. And she's a war prisoner who he's forcing to marry him. Yeah, I mean, they wheel her out at the beginning of the show in a cage. Oh, my God. Do you remember how good that, that moment is, though? She's in this, like, glass yeah. box. It's so good. And she's so angry. And she also, like, she inspires Hermia to stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, like, he's very firm with her at the beginning. And then at the end, he's like, come, Hippolyta. And she just, like, <laughs> his hand and is like, you've made the right decision. And you're like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Can anyone tell that I love Gwendolyn Christie? <laughs> I love her so much. I think she's so cool. Anyway, you you were still talking. I, I don't remember. No, I was, yeah. Yeah, Titania and Oberon having a more amicable relationship and a relationship that resolves itself somewhat by the end. It makes that final scene, which is you go back to this like oppressive society of people that hasn't really changed that much since the beginning. It's changed for a couple people. Yeah. But it makes it going back to that makes going back to that situation more palatable. Even though, you know, you still have to consider, like you said, Demetrius is still under a love spell for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. These people are still That's never addressed. <laughs> no. It's never addressed. And he doesn't he still doesn't act disproportionately anymore. When they're under the love spell, they're all very, like, intense, crazy love. And he wakes up like it's normal. Anyway, yeah. I don't know. I feel like you have Oliver Chris and Gwendolyn Christie playing those parts. And it just feels, you don't feel as bad leaving them there in that situation as I have, you know, other times I've seen it. I'm like, that's okay. Yeah. That's all we're going to do for them? Okay, cool. Because they leave, they leave it joyfully. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And there are, there are a lot of strong women in this production. I mean, we already talked about Hermia is always a spitfire, but this Hermia was very much a spitfire, like had some, some stage combat where Lysander's trying to hold her back. And she like, I don't know, she ripped him up a little bit. And, you know, that kind of plays into the stereotype that Scots are always tough, but like also every Scot I've ever met is very tough. So I don't know. So Hermia, Helena is very strong in her own way, not in the like, the same classic like physically tough way but obviously Hippolyta and Titania uh there are also three of the mechanicals in this production were gender swapped to female characters Quince, Snout, and Snug and Snout and Snug are both intimidating working class women they're very tough they're very physically intimidating there's there are multiple jokes made about Bottom and Flute and Starveling being afraid of them and I like I think you could make an argument 
that that's falling into caricature for laughs, but I don't think it is. I, honestly, like every character in this production is so fleshed out within their story arc. And that's what you said earlier about the lovers being units and not individuals. I think part of the reason why this production is so, so good is that every character in this production is an individual and none of the gender swaps are made for a joke. I've seen a production of Taming of the Shrew where all of the characters were gender swapped and there was a, a male actor playing a male version of Bianca, but he played it very like stereotypically effeminate and it was very flat and clearly just for laughs and it didn't do anything for me. That kind of gender swapping, I, there's no point. But this kind of gender swapping is just this actor is best at the role and we as a company decided that the actors can be playing their gender and not the gender in the text. And that's what it is. Let's see how we explore there and like make the role belong to this actor for this show. Yeah, it was just so well cast. And I think that does a huge amount for making them feel like people. Yeah. Oh man. What a what a good production. We didn't even we even talked about the fairies at all. They're all aerialists. They just have aerial silks up in the flies. It's not even flies. It's like a truss system. They were insane. Like Yeah. They were all so talented. Oh my God. It was so good. Just everything. Did David Morse know how to do that before he took the role or did he learn that? I, he specifically must've. for Puck. He must have. Because he's too good to not know. He's so good. I feel like I, I read somewhere that he knew a little bit and mm. learned more. Oh, yeah. He was great. He's great, Puck. And they also, here's another thing. I found this is a, a, dis- a difference between British theater and American theater. In American theater, it's still very looked down on to improvise off of Shakespeare's text at all. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a Shakespeare play, you don't add in anything else, no other words. In England, especially in London, that's starting to become more of a trend. And especially in this production, they had lots of bits that were a little asides to the audience. Because it was interactive, it made sense. Yeah, interactive. I think Puck did it the most. There's a, there's a bit where he's moving between platforms and he would just like look at the audience and be like, excuse me, Come on, get out of the way. Come on, come on, out of the way, everybody. God, Londoners. <laughs> and, it, you know, I've seen it so many times now that all of those improvs weren't actually improv. They were improved in rehearsal sometime and then, like, solidified and put into the script. They were the same every night, but I think that's how you do it well. Honestly, like, it really worked. And I think it's because they weren't improving in the moment. They had found what worked in rehearsal and then stuck it in but I know I know lots of people who find that really bothers them but it, I, it really worked here and I've seen it work in other Shakespeare productions in London too I could just talk about Shakespeare forever listen my listeners you should be glad I don't have the text in front of me let's <laughs> turn into like let's look at the ambic pentameter of this line oh my god so fast you're unstoppable <laughs> do you have other thoughts not that I can think of. Yeah, me neither. I just liked it. It was so good. I just don't have any other thoughts than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I just loved it. Uh, if you missed it, I'm sorry. It's the best <laughs> introduction I've ever seen. 
if it ever comes back to NT Live, go see it. Yeah, absolutely. Go see it because it it's wonderful. Like they filmed it really, really well too. Yes. I was concerned that it was not going to capture the experience of being immersed in it, but it did. And also, when you have came, you can watch it more than once. You can watch the audience. And there's mm-hmm. one guy in a white T-shirt who was so enjoying that production. <laughs> He's the the man that Puck joins hands with at the end. Yes, um, I noticed him too. <laughs> which I was like, Puck chose him not because just he was standing there, but because he noticed he was engrossed the whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that the second and third time I saw it live, I spent a lot of time watching the audience where I was like, did you see that bit? I loved that bit. Did you see it? I saw you see it. What a great Yeah, show. I would definitely recommend going with Ellie to, uh, to an interactive and- show that she's been to twice before because she knew exactly <laughs> where to stand. <laughs> I did maneuver you into a place. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, I, I feel like I have other other friends who can attest that I'm a joy to see Shakespeare with. One of my friends told me, like, right after we met, that he'd never seen a Shakespeare play. And I was like, uh, okay, well, we can't be friends <laughs> until you've seen it. <laughs> and I had just gone to see the RSC production of Measure for Measure. Mm-hmm. And at the interval, I texted him. I was like, I'm buying his tickets for this right now. You're coming. Because it was a great production. Like, that's another really good one. And then we were we had dinner and then went to see it. And like as we were walking there, I was like, I better explain the plot because Measure for Measure is not an easy play for people who know Shakespeare well. And it was three hours long and he had a great time. So there you go. You heard it here first. Yeah. You know, our email for the podcast is and then she said pod at gmail.com. Please email us with your thoughts, with your input, or if you just want to go see a Shakespeare play when the theaters reopen, hit me up. I always want to go. (laughs) Unfortunately, you'll have to be in London because that's where I am. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny. I don't know. Sometimes I have my moments. Listen, (laughs) the funny ones most of the time, but I have the occasional moment. Yes. A Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Nicholas Heitner. Honestly, the Bridge Theater, I've, everything I've seen at the Bridge Theater has been amazing. Um, when theaters reopen, go. Get a membership, go see everything they do. It's always good. Yeah, we'll go see stuff when the theaters reopen and you also live here. Hell yeah. So, thanks for chatting with me today. Anytime especially about this production. (laughs) Always, always want to talk about this production. Oh, man. Yeah, cool. Thank you for tuning in to And Then She Said. If you have thoughts you want to share, email us at andthenshesaidpod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at andthenshesaidpod. Hope to see you next time for whatever we talk about next.